Well, if you could turn your Bibles to uh, 1 Timothy 3, uh, just uh, <clears throat> a couple shout outs. One is to Larry Barnhill. He's a tough act to follow, man. Um, thank you for coming, Larry. And I know a number of you guys are interested in prison ministry, so please talk to Larry afterwards about that. <clears throat> um, also, to, again, to Fred and his team, they also um, prepared some um, take-home bags for us. So they're out there in the lobby at sausage and pancakes, so feel free to take them home. Um, and to the Hour family, is Ken here today? I don't, <clears throat> okay, I don't know if you saw it this week. Uh, the Hour family, so... Uh, Hannah, Caleb, and Joshua competed in the, the first ever National Ninja family event. It was on NBC, and, th and they won. Uh, and they were awesome. They were awesome. They were. <clears throat> so, shout out to them. Well, this coming year, we're going to be using 1 Timothy 3, verse 4, for our focus and teaching. So, let me read that. <clears throat> So he's talking about an elder, an elder candidate. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care for God's church? So we decided to take this phrase, manage his household well, and expand it to manage your life well. So whether you're, you're single or married, whether you're young or not so young, um, whether you have children at home or, or you're an empty nester, we're called to manage or steward our life well. And so today, Phil was going to be speaking about managing your character well. Um, and unfortunately, uh, his, they changed his medication this past week and it's had some effects on him. And so at the beginning of the week, he said, Hey, guys, I think you might need to have, have somebody fill in for me. And uh, if you know Phil, uh, you know for him to say that uh, tells you how much of a challenge it is. He's a man of perseverance, a man of endurance, um, and we appreciate his example of engaging God in the midst of health challenges. So I'm going to pinch hit for him today about managing our character well. Then in no November, we're going to talk about managing our time well. You know, there's a lot of books out there about managing our time well. But what's the biblical worldview about how to handle our time? We want to talk about that as men. And then Benjamin in February is going to talk about managing your heart well. And he's not only going to talk about sexual purity, but also devotion to God, having a heart that's devoted to God. And then in May, Luke Luke Erisman, he's back. He was doing some, I think, missionary work in Poland. Is that right, Luke? Um, he's going to actually be talking to us about managing your money well, being a good steward there. So <clears throat> we're not going to address managing your children well or your family well because, one, we have a marriage retreat next month in, in October. Then in early next year, we're going to have a discipleship series on parenting. And then later on, late spring, we're going to have a, a mini-series on the book of Proverbs. So we'll be covering managing your family, managing your children well there. So having me fill in for Phil reminds me of the vice president, presidential debate in 1988 between Dan Quayle and Lloyd Benson. They were both U.S. senators, 
And so in response to a question about his experience or lack of it, if he would become president, Dan Quayle made a comment that he had as much experience as John Kennedy when he became president. And Benson then responded, he said, Jack Kennedy was a friend of mine. Senator, you're no Jack Kennedy. And so that became a famous phrase. It was so famous, in fact, that uh, four years later, at the 1992 Republican National Convention, Ronald Reagan answered claims uh, by, the, by Bill Clinton's campaign while poking fun at his own age. He said, this fellow they've nominated claims he's the new Thomas Jefferson. Well, let me tell you something. I knew Thomas Jefferson. <laughs> he was a friend of mine. And Governor, you're no Thomas Jefferson. Well, we all know I'm no Phil Sasser. There's only one Phil Sasser, and we thank God for him. And we thank God for the many gifts that he has given to our church and continues to give to our church. We are grateful that he's back in active ministry. Uh, Phil is a pastor and a teacher. And um, I don't know anyone better at this than, than Phil. He, he, uh, when he's teaching, he pastors people. And when he pastors people, he teaches them as well. And those are two of the many legacies that Phil has brought to our church. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. We're going to pray for Phil, pray for myself, and pray for us as men. <clears throat> so Lord, I do thank you. We all, the elders always thank you for our men. Lord, what a gift of grace that you have given to our men, our young men and our older men and those in between, Lord, these godly men that you've given our church. Uh, Lord, help us through these meetings we're going to have this year to encourage one another and to grow as men of God. And Lord, we do pray for our brother Phil. Lord, thank you for him. Let's pray you would restore his health, help him to get adjusted to this new medication. And I, we do thank you that he's back in active ministry in our church and pray that that would continue, Lord. Pray that you would give him the gifts of health and vitality, even in the midst of his struggles, Lord strengthen our brother in his inner being and in his body and bring healing to him, Lord. And Lord, just grant us your grace today as we look at your word. Amen. Well, I did speak with Phil this week and we reviewed the outline and the burden that he had for, his t for this teaching. Um, so I'm, I'm gonna be basically using his outline and then I, I filled it in with some of my own thoughts. So Phil had three points the first had to do with the setting and the context of 1 Timothy. This will enable us to see 1 Timothy 3 in its proper light. His second point had to do with being above reproach and what that means. And then the third point deals with some practical issues with being above reproach. <clears throat> so in his letter to 1 Timothy, the, the apostle Paul is, is writing to Timothy, who's, he's at the church in Ephesus, and he's addressing a number of issues and problems in the church there. I mean, that's why he writes most of his letters. Um, and the letters, the, the problems that he is addressing, they're, they're not unlike the problems and issues that are in the church today. And one of them was false teachers and false doctrine. So he says in 1 Timothy 1, I urge you, He's talking to Timothy, I urge you when I was going to Macedonia, 
remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine nor to devote your nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. We must be aware of false teachers. And you know, there are many, many voices out there, especially on social media, and we must be careful of what we listen to. So later on in chapter 1, in verse 20, Paul mentions two men, Hymenaeus and Alexander, who have made shipwreck of their faith. You know, that's one of the fruits of embracing false doctrine. People wander away from the faith and are shipwrecked. In chapter 2, we get some more insight into the, the church in Ephesus and some of the things that we're dealing with. Remember, when Paul writes a letter, he's writing it specifically to that church. He's not just writing general information, right? He's pointing at something here. So he says, men, men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise, also, that women should adorn themselves in respectful apparel with modesty and self-control not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with that is, which is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. So he's addressing how men and women should behave. In chapter 4, he addresses false teachers again and false doctrine again. And then in chapter 5, he, he talks about, one, how to, how to deal with widows in the church, but also he talks about elders. Um, one, he talks about how to handle charges against elders. And two, he talks about how to handle elders who persist in sin. He said they should be actually publicly rebuked. That's a great motivation as an elder, right? <laughs> to not sin. Um, to be publicly rebuked. Then in chapter 6, he again addresses false teachers. And he also speaks to those in the church who are rich and how they should behave. So there's a lot going on in the church in Ephesus. Just like in any church, right? There's a lot going on. Some of it you know about, some of it you don't. But when you put sinners together in a church, there's lots of things going on. And we, that's why we need God's word. So Paul says this in chapter 3. And one of the things about Paul, uh, that Phil wanted to highlight about this passage is that it's a controlling thought and passage for the whole book of 1 Timothy. Paul says, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. You know, how we behave uh, as Christians in general and men specifically, how we uh, behave is vitally important. Our conduct is important, especially in the church community. It's a big deal. You know, right behavior is fueled by spiritual growth. Daniel mentioned spiritual growth. It's not just 
doing outward things. It's right behavior that's fueled by inward spiritual growth. And this word behavior means the manner of one's life as well as one's moral character. And Paul was actually making an incredible statement from this passage in 1 Timothy 3 that we just read. And that is that the church, which is us, right? The church is the pillar and the buttress or the foundation of the truth. So as men, we are to live lives that reflect the truth of the gospel and the glory of God. Do we feel that burden and responsibility of that call? And our, our response to that may be similar to Paul's in 1 Corinthians 3, and he, for he says, who is adequate for these things? Right? It's a great call, but who's adequate for those, th- these things? And it's, it's somewhat a rhetorical question. No one is adequate for these things. But then in the next chapter, he goes on to clarify that. For he says, not that we are adequate in ourselves so as to consider anything as having come from ourselves. But here's encouragement, brothers. But our adequacy is from God. We can live lives that glorify God and reflect who he is. But it does require effort. It's what uh, Ken, uh, Kent used in one of his books. He calls it holy sweat. It's effort that's rooted in a dependency upon God. So spiritual growth requires effort. In chapter 4 of 1 Timothy, Paul focuses on the effort we are to make in regards to our behavior and godliness in terms of spiritual growth. And as we read this, I want you to notice the action and the intensity that Paul is communicating. He's describing this holy sweat. He says, practice these things. And these things he he had just alluded to are one is Timothy's character, um, Timothy's spiritual gifts, his teaching, and his pursuit of godliness. He says, practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that you all may see your progress, all may see your spiritual growth. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. That's, a, that's an amazing statement. That godly behavior, through it, we will save both ourselves and our hearers. There's, there's a spiritual blessing, as Daniel mentioned at the beginning. There's spiritual blessing to our families and to our church when men grow spiritually. So Paul is calling us to a robust spiritual growth. And he's telling Timothy and the church, and even more importantly to us, that our behavior matters. You know, I didn't grow up in an, in an evangelical church Um, we did go to church a lot. Um, But, you know, my father, my father lived a praiseworthy life. In fact, at his his funeral, I had many men come up to me and say, your dad was like a father to me. Yeah, I had a dad, but your dad was actually 
my, my father. He was like my father. And even though I didn't always follow his example as a young man, his behavior was, I believe, is a guiding influence in my life. So our behavior matters. And that leads us to our second point, which is being above reproach. So if we go back to chapter 3, 1 Timothy, Paul was spelling out the qualifying character traits for those who desire to be elders. He said, the saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive, For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? So this this passage is telling us what a mature believer is, is to look like. It tells Christian men how they should behave. Yes, it is a qualification for eldership, but we would expect the qualification for eldership to be godliness, right? So this is one description or list of godliness. And there are a number in the, in the Bible. I mean, you could go to, say, Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit. That's a pretty good list for godliness. This one in 1 Timothy is a list for godliness. It's not just for elder candidates. It's for all Christian men. You know, you can't, you, I don't think you can say, right, oh, I don't, I don't feel called to be a pastor. Therefore, you know, I don't have to be gentle or I don't have to Uh, not be a drunkard, or I don't have to exhibit self-control. No, none of us would say that, right? This is a list of maturity for the Christian man, and they are required qualifications for eldership. D.A. Carson writes this about this list of qualifications. He says, this list of qualifications is remarkable for being unremarkable. The criteria mentioned are demanded of all Christians everywhere, which is another way of saying elders are are first of all to be exemplars of the Christian graces that are presupposed as mandated on all Christians. And so even though we may not all aspire to be a pastor or an elder, we should all aspire to this type of character, this behavior And this list helps us understand how we should behave in the household of God. We do so by cultivating the the attitudes and attributes and the actions in this list of 1 Timothy 3. Now, we don't have time to go through all the attributes that he lists. But we do have time to look at the first one on the list, which is above reproach. And it seems to be a good summary of the entire list. You know, we held a a group, um, we started, I think, right the year before COVID, and it went for about two years for leadership training, and it was called the Leadership Cohort. And in one of our sessions, we discussed this attribute of being above reproach. And I remember it. it. 
it sobered everyone, I think, in the group, including the elders. I think especially the elders. And when you, when you stop and you think about my life is to be above reproach, it is a high and a challenging calling for every Christian leader and every Christian man. And we must pursue it. Because the history of the Bible and the history of the church sadly is littered with, le- with leaders whose lives in the end were not above reproach. And it has left the trail of ruin and reproach upon God and upon his people. And, and we could all make a list, right? We could make a list of those in the Bible who did not live lives above reproach. And, but we also personally, you know, uh, we all know either nationally or even locally, maybe personally in your own life, people who did not live lives that were above reproach. One of the things Phil mentioned in his outline was, though, there's actually many men in Scripture who did live above reproach, according to the testimony of Scripture. Here's, the, here's the, some of those men. Enoch, Joseph, Joshua, Caleb, Boaz, the prophet Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Peter, Paul, John, Stephen, and the other six deacons in chapter 6. Remember, one of the qualifications for deacons is to be a man of good repute, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. So this list is a list of men of character and faith. And when you read about it, you're inspired by their lives, right? I think last year when we went through the book of Daniel, that was one of the responses. Like, you read the life of Daniel and you're inspired by his life. You want to be like him. Now, <clears throat> when, we, when we, Connie and I went to the, our sister church uh, in Lancaster, we attended there for uh, seven years. And when we started attending there, there was a couple, Clyde and Beverly Swigert. And they were, they were the, this older couple, but they had a lot of energy and a lot of love, and they were servants, and they were humble. And we, all, and we always said to one another, we want to be like them when we grow up. We want to be like them when we grow up. That's what happens when you see people that live lives above reproach. You say in your heart, I want to be like that person when I grow up in the Lord. And I want to stress how important that is. It's a calling for every Christian man. And you may not know the impact that you are making, but it will be there. So we want to be above reproach. So what does reproach mean? Well, here's one definition. To express disappointment in or displeasure with a person for conduct that is blameworthy or in need of amendment. You know, reproach comes from a failure of character. It comes when men don't watch, when a man doesn't watch his life carefully and doesn't develop godly character. Now, we want to remember that we're not talking about perfection. We're talking about Christian maturity, a consistency in godliness. 
Phil, Phil mentioned this. It's a man who lives a life of honor and integrity. Integrity, I think, is a good word. It means what you see on the outside is what's really going on in the inside. And if you look at the, the Greek word for integrity, it means uh, a lack, there's no corruption. Meaning, on the inside, there's no corruption. It's, it's solid. It's through and through. What you see is what you get. But brothers, here, here is an encouraging word for us who are sinners. There's only one man who was and is truly above reproach, and that's the Lord Jesus. You know, we all are sinners, and we need a Savior. And on the cross, Christ took our reproaches. Romans 15 says that. Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. What glorious news is that? That Christ at Calvary took our shame and our guilt and our reproach. And remember the story in Leviticus 16, or the description in Leviticus 16, that there was two, scape, there was two goats, okay? One goat the priests were to slaughter, to sacrifice. But the other goat, they laid their hands on it, and then they sent it away, and it went into the wilderness, and they never saw it again. And Christ is, we see Christ in both of those goats, one, he, he was slaughtered. He died for our sins. And he took our reproach and sent it away. And we will never see it again. Remember, he said, it is finished. Our reproach was taken by Christ. Colossians 1 speaks of this. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. That's justification. He presents us holy and blameless and above reproach before God the Father. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel. So let us not shift away from the hope of the gospel that tells us that even when we stumble, and James, James tells us that we stumble in many ways, even when we stumble, that Christ has taken away our reproach and we are actually given his righteousness. That's the great exchange. He took our reproach, we received his righteousness. And we must keep that in front of us as we seek to live lives that are above reproach. Brothers, we must hold both of these truths and live in the good of them. So we, we are to live freely and solely by faith in the person and work of Christ. When Satan, when Satan tempts me to despair, and tells me of the guilt within, I look and see him there who made an end of all my sins. 
Hallelujah. What a Savior. And what a message of joy and freedom. See, this is the faith that saves us and sustains us. Faith in Christ's work alone will keep you sane and happy as you fight the war against sin. Faith in Christ's work alone will keep you sane and happy even as you battle against sin. It will give you strength. Make no mistake about it, seeking to live above reproach is no easy task. And our first line of defense is knowing that we are accepted by God, our Father, through Jesus Christ alone. If you don't have that hope, you're not going to be able to fight the good fight. But secondly, we must keep in front of us this call to live above reproach. Not to live perfectly, but to live above reproach. To live in a way that glorifies God. And I want to encourage any of you here today that might say in their heart, oh, I've blown it. I've lived or I am living in a way that does bring reproach. You know, in some ways, all of us can identify with that sentiment. But if that specifically describes you, then turn to the Lord. Put your confidence and your hope in Christ. Though we remain sinners in our fight against sin, in Christ we are also saints. Saints who are called to live for the glory of God and for the good of our families and the good of our church community and in some ways the good of the, the church at large. You know, whatever, whatever sphere you live in, whether it's big or small, and for most of us it's small, right? We have small but significant lives. Whatever sphere that you live in, your life and your example for some people in your sphere, you know, your neighbor, a family member, a colleague at work, maybe, a, maybe someone you, you just know casually, that person, for you, you may be for that person the only representative of what it means to be a Christian. You know, one, years ago, I remember I met a gentleman, and he came, and I was talking to him at church, and here he had worked with Phil in the pharmacy. And this guy had gone through some tough times, but what he, I remember what he said about Phil. He said, he's the finest man I know. See, there's an example of living above, a life above reproach. I don't, think, I don't think that man was a Christian at that time. Could be wrong. But he knew Phil Sasser, and he saw a Christian man. And in a similar way, our behavior can have a great effect upon our family, our church family, our children, our grandchildren, other young people in our church. You know, I'm glad that, that my children grew up in a church community with godly examples. Not perfect examples, but godly examples. <clears throat> and, and brothers, this is the great call upon our lives, to point others to the Savior through our words, but even more importantly, sometimes through our lives. 
by living above reproach. So how do we do that? Well, our last step is practical steps to becoming a man above reproach. So the first, <clears throat> first practical step is, I think, remember. Remember the list at 1 Timothy 3, where it outlines for us what Christian maturity looks like and what it means to be above reproach. So again, here I'm drawing from Phil's outline. And he just, remember, this is a snapshot of what it looks like to be a mature man. <clears throat> so here's the list from um, 1 Timothy 3, and, and in parentheses, just some small liner notes from Phil. Um, a mature Christian man is the husband of one wife, if, if he's married. So He's sober-minded. He's self-controlled. He's respectable. He's hospitable. He's able to teach. He's not a drunkard. He's not violent. He's gentle. It's amazing how often that the word gentle is mentioned in the New Testament. I think it's like 14 times. He's not a lover of money. He manages his household well with all dignity. He keeps his children submissive. He's not a recent convert. Remember, we're talking here about qualifications for an elder, but we can all, regardless of how old you are in the Lord, we do not want to be puffed up with conceit. You know, pride knows no age, right? You can be a young convert or you can be an old convert and have, be puffed up with conceit. And he's thought well of by outsiders. And again, I think that, that kind of wraps up. If you're a man above reproach, that's going to be seen. You're going to be seen well, thought well of by outsiders. Now, again, we don't have time to go into all those, but one way that you could um, is to discuss them in your home group men's meetings. Okay? I, I know that some of the, the, the home groups, the men meet separately, some of them don't. But if you do, you could take one or two of those um, attributes and discuss them each time. Basically, just discuss what is it and how am I doing in it. Or maybe you meet, you know, one-on-one -on -one with another believer. Maybe it's somebody at work. Maybe it's somebody in your home group or in church. I know that uh, Jordan and Alan, they've been meeting for, what, 15, 20 years. Every, every Monday morning they meet. Um, here is a list to go over. You know, sometimes we get together and we just kind of shoot the breeze. Here is a list that will help us with biblical fellowship, growing spiritually. This list gives us a concrete way of measuring what godliness looks like. So remember the list. Secondly, remember how true growth happens. Larry mentioned it this morning. It starts on the inside, not on the outside. Now, if you are committing outward sinful behavior, you know, in the words of Bob Newhart, stop it. <laughs> stop it. But stopping or changing outward behavior is not enough. We must seek to be changed on the inside. And Jesus addressed this in Mark 7. 
and he said, and, and he's going to talk about, you know, the, the list from 1 Timothy is the positive attributes, right? Here he's addressing the negative attributes that we need to put to death. He says, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For within, out of the heart of man, comes evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. So how do we change inwardly? Well, through the means of grace, which are many. There are many means of grace, but they start with our relationship with God in the word and in prayer. So when you read the Bible, allow the Bible to read you. This doesn't mean to allow it to condemn you, because there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ, but it does mean to allow it to convict you. That is to show you where you are falling short, where you need to change or even grow. Maybe you're doing okay, but you want to grow in that. And this, this won't happen if you're just racing through the scriptures. It only happens if you're either slowly reading through or meditating or studying, pondering the scriptures. Whether it's feeling the little pinpricks that come from God's word as you read it, or the thrusting through of the sword, right? Like, oh, you know, which comes from the same. Allow that to have entrance into your heart and life. So have a soft belly in that regard to the word of God. Let it penetrate you. And this ought to be a regular habit of ours our entire life. This is part of the making of the man in secret where nobody sees. It's the work of God. And it is an ongoing and glorious work of the Spirit. And even at age 66, almost 67, I don't have the luxury of stopping this practice Charles Wesley said, I will go to the grave with a sword in my hand. We need the word of God to be examining us on a regular basis. Second, pray for the examination of the spirit in your life. He is the great searcher and knower of our heart and our ways and our motives and our secret sins and our blindness. There's areas where we are not seeing that well. So pray for the examination of the Spirit of God. He does examine your heart whether you want him to or not, but this is a prayer to ask him to be actively doing that and revealing his examination. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 2, instead we speak as those approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, not in order to please men, but God who examines our heart. 
And David, David prays in Psalm 26, test me, O Lord, and try me. Examine my heart and mind. And I, I think this type of prayer, this prayer for God's searching of us, is one of the most wonderful and helpful prayers we can pray because we don't want to live as blind men. You know, did you ever read the, the, the paper? You look at the headlines of somebody, some guy who blew up their life, right? And you're thinking, what was he thinking? Like, how did he get there? How, didn't he see that coming? No, he was blind. Sometimes it's in the headlines, but sometimes it's even actually closer to home. Maybe it's one of your colleagues at work. Or maybe it's somebody in the church or in the family. We don't want to be blind men. We don't want to be clueless. So there's, to me, there's much security in asking God, right? Lord, test me, examine me. Show me. And he's very good at that. And if it's condemnation, that's not God. It's conviction. He convicts you of an area to change. There's hope to, to change. And this prayer, if prayed regularly, is a great aid against walking blind. We pray for God's searching and his revealing. And sometimes the answer to those prayers, sometimes it comes from a human person, right? Sometimes it comes through circumstances. Uh, And sometimes it comes through the spirit and the word whispering to us. That's actually my preferred method. I'd actually be reproved by the Lord in secret. And that actually is a great motivation to pray that prayer. Because if you don't pray that prayer, it may come from one of those other areas. I'd much rather be reproved by my father in my prayer closet. And so that motivates me. But regardless of how it comes, we should be asking for it. And we should seek to change as it comes to us. To be above reproach, we need to grow in self-awareness of our life and our behavior. We want to grow in being circumspect. And here's the definition of circumspect. It means careful to consider all circumstances and possible consequences. It means to be prudent. You know, Proverbs talks a lot about being a prudent man, looking down the road and seeing danger. It doesn't mean we don't take risk, no. But it's talking about especially moral danger. So here's a question from Phil. That's an example of being circumspect. How would you feel if the entire church knew about what you were doing or thinking about doing? How would you explain it? Would it reflect poorly on the gospel or be a stumbling block to others? So here we're not really talking about blatant areas of sin, but maybe gray, questionable areas that may not be wise or edifying or may cause someone to stumble. 
We, we, we need wisdom in those areas, but those type of questions can help us. And because those things can, even though they start gray, they may lead us down the road to scandal or dishonor or reproach. You know, if you peel back the threads of scandal, financial scandal, uh, sexual scandal, a lot of times they didn't start with black or white areas, right? They started maybe in that gray area. You know, maybe at work you have a colleague who is a female and they're a good person and you enjoy talking with them. Well, that's fine. But you need self-awareness of what's going on. You need to be circumspect in all of life. Well, we need to learn to be aware of the areas God is at work in our life. So we, we ask him, we become aware of those things. Um, sometimes they're not that obvious, right? Sometimes we're just tripping over them all the time. Uh, but sometimes we do need the spirit to reveal and convict. So we need to come up, um, we need to be aware of the areas God is at work and cooperate with him. It's always better to cooperate with God, right? Bad things happen when we don't cooperate with God. We need to come up with a plan on how to grow in that area. So just in closing, here are some things that Phil suggested in developing that plan and begin to take steps in the right direction. One is repentance. Start there. Turn from the area of sinfulness. You know, if you read the Old Testament prophets, that was part of their core message. Repent and turn back to God. Pretty simple. Turn from your idols and turn back to the living God. And that's, that is true in the new covenant. You know, they came declaring the, the kingdom of God, repent and believe. So it's not only how we initially respond to the gospel, but also how we re respond in the ongoing sanctification. We put faith in God. And here I think it is, are we trusting God to help us change? Do we believe that we can change? Not can we believe, do we believe that God will help us to change? And if you don't, then you need to go to God's word and get his promises and get them in your heart and your mind and pray them and faith will come. Remember, it, this is, it takes effort. Ask to be filled with the spirit for wisdom and strength. You know, you cannot live the Christian life in your own strength. Daniel talked today about being strong men. We do want to be strong men, but that means we have a reliance upon the word, upon Christ, and upon his spirit. It's what one person talked about as having God-dependent effort. God-dependent effort. And this includes cultivating the fruit of the spirit. Also, take practical steps. As men, we, we like to be problem solvers, right? We like to think logically. We kind of tease women that they, they don't think logically. 
Sometimes they think emotionally. Well, we should apply that, this to areas in our life that need change. What is the problem? Where am I not above reproach? What does scripture say about it? What is a practical step that I can start with that will help me to change? Begin there. God will help you. You can change. We can change. It's it's the mystery of God's grace. And persevere. Keep your focus on that change. Revisit it. Evaluate how you're doing it. You know, you would do the same thing at work, right? If, you're, if you have a task to do, you're going to go through those steps. Apply it to your own personal life. Get help from others. Talk to a pastor or another trusted brother and enlist their advice in their prayers. Read good, biblically sound books on the subject. Be proactive about it. Don't be a passive man. The world is filled with passive men. It doesn't mean being aggressive in some stupid way, but it means taking action according to the mandates of Scripture. And remember the definition of insanity, right? It's thinking you're going to change when nothing else is changing. You have to change. Your behavior, your attitude, your heart has to change. And lastly, if you don't have an accountability partner or a brother that you regularly meet with, I encourage you to find one. You know, it's good to have a person, a brother who knows what is going on in your life. What's really going on in your life, right? That that, that one guy that you, you feel free to really talk about those things. And who will help you in this area and check with you on your progress. And, and most of the times, those, those, are, those are mutual encouragement. He's going to encourage you. You're going to encourage him. I, we need, brothers, we need. We talked about iron sharpening iron. We need other men in our lives. And I want to encourage you in that. So let me close in prayer. And then um, some of you may have to, to leave. But if, you, if you're able to stick around... We have some discussion questions where you can break into groups um, of three or four people and discuss these questions. Let's pray. Lord, we do want to be men who are above reproach. And Lord, we thank you for your son, Jesus, who is our example and our sacrifice and our justification and our life. Oh, Lord, may Christ be formed in us more and more by your word and by your spirit. And Lord, help us as men. Help us to encourage one another. Help us to live lives that are above reproach so that we might be lights to others of what it looks like to follow Christ. Thank you for your grace to do what you command us to do. Amen. Thank you, brothers.